This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Welcome back, everyone. We have another great episode today. Here we have a nephrologist from Rush who I had the pleasure of working with when I did my renal rotation, and he has a wonderful lecture prepared about the different types of dialysis, which is something that I was very confused about before I started the rotation, and he really helped to clear up. So I'll let him introduce himself, and we'll get started. Hi, I'm Casey Gashti. I'm a nephrologist at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, and I will be talking about the general concept of renal replacement therapy, which is something that patients need when their kidneys fail, whether in an acute setting like acute kidney injury or when it happens in end-stage renal disease when somebody is now requiring dialysis on a chronic basis. Hemodialysis, which is the most prevalent type of dialysis it refers to clearance of solutes from the blood, hemo being referred to blood. And on the outpatient setting, we do hemodialysis often in the clinic, but it could also be done at home. Peritoneal dialysis, which we'll also talk about, is done most of the time at home. We can do all of these treatments in on the inpatient setting as well. And hemodialysis, the blood purification happens outside of the body. And the the way we do that is we have to actually have access to the bloodstream. And so a dialysis access, whether it's a catheter, a fistula, or a graft, is essential in removal of blood in order to clean, clean it and purify it and then return it back to the body. The process of cleaning, which is often referred to as clearance, is occurs in a, inside of a filter. And there are two different methodologies of clearance. One is called diffusive clearance or diffusion by which molecules essentially move across a semi-permeable membrane across a concentration gradient. So for example, if there are a concentration of urea or blood urea nitrogen or VUN is high or like a hundred, for example, and creatinine is 10 in somebody's blood, when that patient's blood comes inside of a dialysis filter, the other side of the filter has a solution called dialysate. And dialysate has no VUN and no creatinine. So there is a concentration gradient where the molecules will move across through and fit through the pores of a dialysis membrane and be removed from the bloodstream. And if you do this process of purification over and over and over, eventually at the end of the treatment, the blood should have a much lower concentration of toxins than it had at the beginning of the treatment. The flow of blood, the speed of how fast the blood comes out of a patient's body is called the blood flow. And for the most part, the blood flow in hemodialysis is somewhere around 400 milliliters per minute, which is quite fast. If you can imagine in a three-hour dialysis treatment, one could potentially go through the entire blood volume, which is around five liters in an average-sized person, at least 20 times. And so every pass of blood that goes through the filter, there is a slight reduction in the concentration of solutes. And by solutes, we refer to both as BUN, creatinine, as well as certain electrolytes like potassium and calcium bicarbonate and magnesium, all of these small molecules that fit through the pores of a dialysis membrane can move either away from the patient towards the dialysate, which is the solution across the membrane, or 
if in case of, for example, bicarbonate, when there is a higher concentration of bicarb in the dialysate, the bicarb can move from the solution into the patient. So in fact, dialysis could be an infusion of bicarbonate in somebody who is acidotic or acidemic, and that could be an indication for dialysis. So diffusion simply implies dialysis via the process of diffusion, where there is a concentration gradient from the blood into the dialysate solution. We often use SATE, which is a solution that we make. If uh, you have noticed in some institutions, when you walk into a patient who is receiving dialysis, you see that there is a hose that's actually attached to the sink. And what we're doing is we're actually taking water out of the city, out of the yep. out of the faucet, and we send the blood to the back of the dialysis machine. There is a water purification system. Sometimes it's reverse osmosis. Sometimes it's a filter of some kind. And we take out a lot of the impurities from the city water, from the tap water. And then we add electrolytes and we add acid and base, and we bring the pH up to a normal pH of 7.4, and we produce the composition of that dialysate to something that we would like. So for example, if somebody has a high potassium of eight, we usually dialyze that patient against a low potassium bath. So we, we order and we make a solution that has only 1K potassium. And because because the potassium is eight in the patient and one in the dialysate, we create a significant gradient where potassium can actually move across the membrane. If somebody's potassium is low, let's say the potassium is 3.2, we don't want to remove too much potassium. In fact, we don't want to remove any potassium. So we would dialyze that patient against a potassium concentration of three so that there is not much of a gradient so that you're not removing or lowering the potassium too much. So one of the things that a nephrologist would do is adjust the concentration of various uh, electrolytes in a dialysate solution based on what the patient's needs are. We can do the same thing with sodium. We can adjust bicarbonate. We can, uh, we can adjust calcium uh, and so on and so forth. The terminology that we use to refer to diffusive clearance is called hemodialysis. That's essentially purification of blood via the process of diffusion. There's another method that we can clean the blood and that's called convection. Convection really refers to when somebody removes plasma water and along with that plasma water, certain substances come off as well. So the way this works is when the blood enters a dialysis filter, there is no dialysate solution on the other side of the semi-permeable membrane. What we apply is that we apply a positive pressure inside of a hollow fiber, which is sort of the inside of a, of a dialysis filter, and that pushes plasma water out of the filter into the other side of the semi-permeable membrane. And when that happens, solutes that are small enough to fit through the pores, which would be your typical solutes of BUI, creatinine, potassium, and so on, will follow that what's called an ultrafiltrate, which is the name of the effluent that comes across from the membrane. And we essentially dump that ultrafiltrate, but you can't continue to do that because if you remove plasma water on a continuous basis, you're gonna cause a significant amount of hemoconcentration and, and the filter will clot and the patient will have hypovolemia. So you're gonna have to replace what you removed with a solution that's called replacement fluid. Replacement fluid in composition is very similar to a dialysate. 
However, instead of actually having direct access across the semipermeable membrane, replacement fluid is added to the bloodstream either before the blood enters the filter, which is called a pre-dilution replacement fluid or pre-dilution hemofiltration, or we can add that replacement fluid after the blood leaves the filter, which is called a post-dilution replacement fluid. So the, there are some advantages and disadvantages to both. If you add a solution into the bloodstream prior to the blood entering the filter, when you have an ultrafiltrate, some of that fluid is actually going to come off. And so you actually have a drop in your efficiency of how, how well you're cleaning the blood. If you add the fluid after the blood comes out of the filter, the efficiency is great. It's 100%. However, because you're removing plasma water, you're going to cause some level of hemoconcentration inside of the filter, which would require to anticoagulate the blood. So if you want to get away with no anticoagulation, a pre-dilution hemofiltration is the way to go. And if you want to maintain efficiency and you don't mind doing anticoagulation, let's say using either heparin or citrate as an anticoagulant, then you can add your replacement fluid after. Either way, the process of convective cleaning of the blood refers to as hemofiltration, H or HF. So this comes handy when we talk about the nomenclature for dialysis, because there is a very confusing nomenclature when nephrologists actually talk about dialysis. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that nomenclature. So the nomenclature really communicates how long you're doing a treatment and what methodology of clearance are you using? In other words, are you using diffusion? Or are you using convection? If you're using diffusion, then you use the, the, the letters HD, which is hemodialysis at the end of that acronym. And if you're using convection as a methodology of clearance, then you would use the, the letters H or HF as a methodology of clearance at the end of your acronym. The duration of the treatment also matters. A lot of the dialysis treatments are short. They're three to four to five hours. That's called intermittent hemodialysis as opposed to a dialysis treatment that goes on for 24 hours on a continuous basis. So continuous dialysis or continuous renal replacement therapy, which is acronym CRRT, refers to a dialysis treatment that runs essentially 24-7. This is often reserved for patients who are really ill in the ICU. They usually have hemodynamic compromise. They may be on pressors. They may be very sick. You may require a lot of fluid removal, like a post-cardiac patient. And those types of patients will not tolerate a short dialysis treatment because of the amount of shifts in the fluid and electrolytes that would require in a short period of time, that patient is too sick to handle it. So we would usually say from a patient selection standpoint, that CRRT is indicated in patients who are hemodynamically unstable. So uh, depending on the institution and what the nephrologist is comfortable with and whether you use diffusion or convection or a combination of diffusion or convection, your terminology may be different. So for example, CVVHD stands for continuous venovenous hemodialysis, which means that you're running a continuous treatment over a 24-hour period. The VV, which is a venovenous, means that the blood comes out of a vein and goes into a vein, which is essentially all dialysis treatments across the world are now VV treatments, 
We used to have arteriovenous treatments, but since we now have pumps in our dialysis machines, we no longer have to cannulate an artery to have access to the bloodstream, and we don't have to rely on the cardiac output to send the blood towards the dialysis machine. So all treatments are now venovenous in nature. And the HD part at the end, CVVHD, refers to a diffusive modality of clearance. So now we've actually used one word of CVVHD and the other people who understand that acronym can basically understand that this patient is receiving a treatment over a 24-hour period and that the modality of cleaning is diffusion. The opposite of that would be CVVH, which would be still 24-hour treatment, venovenous as always, but now we're using the word hemofiltration, which means you're using convective clearance. Is there a difference between the two? No, there isn't. There have been plenty of trials that have looked at the difference between hemofiltration versus hemodialysis. We know that hemofiltration tends to remove larger molecules. So the idea of developing this methodology in the 80s was to remove cytokines and hope that that would make a difference in patients with sepsis. The outcomes in sepsis ended up not being any different regardless of which modality you use. And it essentially had to do with early intervention, goal-directed therapy, use of antibiotics early on, source control, and so on and so forth. But the way we dialyzed these patients did not end up making a difference. And most likely because the pores in the dialysis membrane are non-selective, so they remove both pro and, infl- and anti-inflammatory cytokines. And so the net effect was a wash in the sense that hemodialysis versus hemoph did not make a difference. The underlying acuity of illness, whether it was measured by an Apache score, a SOFO score, was really what drove mortality in these patients. And still to this day, of all the really sick patients in the ICU who develop AKI and require renal replacement therapy, regardless of the methodology of clearance, the mortality stays around about 50%. The opposite of continuous therapy would be an intermittent hemodialysis. This is what most institutions use. This is what's used on the general medical floor. This is what's used on the outpatient setting. This is a three to five hour treatment using a diffusive modality of clearance. That's called IHD or intermittent hemodialysis or for short, just HD. There is now also a hybrid model of dialysis, and it's something that it's not continuous, so it's not 24 hours, but it's also not three to four, five hours, so it's not intermittent. So it's somewhere in between. And the accepted nomenclature for that hybrid model of dialysis is now called P-I-R-R-T, or PERT, and that stands for Prolonged Intermittent Renal Replacement Therapy. So The renal replacement therapy part makes sense. It's essentially blood purification, but the prolonged intermittent essentially refers to a longer than three to five hours. So these treatments usually run somewhere between eight to 12 hours. And the reason we do these is because uh, patients may not be as healthy or as hemodynamically stable to to do a three-hour treatment, but they may also not be as sick that require a 24-hour treatment. So imagine an ICU patient who is sick, maybe their blood pressure is 90, but they may not be on pressors. They may not be on a little bit of pressors, maybe only one presser. They are awake, they can get out of bed, they can still do physical therapy. That patient doesn't really need to be stuck on a dialysis machine for 24 hours. So in that patient, it would make sense that you would shorten the dialysis treatment time into a 10-hour treatment, and that patient will definitely tolerate that from a hemodynamic standpoint, 
and we can still take that patient off and give them the freedom during the day to move around, get out of bed. If they have to go for PT, they have to go for imaging, then you have built up a built-in time during the day to actually have that achieved. All right, so, so we've talked about continuous therapy. We've talked about intermittent therapy. We've talked about a hybrid model, which is somewhere in between. And we've also talked about whether we use diffusion or conduction. There's also another terminology that comes up in discussion of dialysis, and that's called ultrafiltration. Ultrafiltration refers to removal of fluid. And essentially, that fluid is plasma water. So imagine if your blood is going through a filter and we're not cleaning it at all. There is no dialysate. There is no replacement fluid. All we're doing is removing fluid from the bloodstream as the blood passes through the filter of dialysis. So in, in essence, what we're doing is we're ultra-filtering plasma water out of the patient. If we do only removal of fluid in a dialysis treatment, we call that isolated ultrafiltration or ISO-UF. If you do it over a long period of time, we use the word slow. Slow continuous ultrafiltration or SCUF is a terminology that we use if, you, if your patient is on your CRRT machine, so the patient is on your 24-hour continuous machine, but we're not doing any cleaning and we're only removing fluid. So the word SCUF or slow continuous ultrafiltration removes to a slow, continuous removal of fluid, whereas a three to five hour treatment would probably be called ISO-UF or isolated ultrafiltration. Most dialysis treatments that we do utilize both a cleaning process and a fluid removal process. So most dialysis treatments have UF goal as well as clear as goals. And if a patient has a lot of fluid, we may take three, four, five liters of fluid over a dialysis course, or whether it's a three-hour treatment or a 24-hour treatment. And if the patient doesn't have extra fluid, they may actually be hypotensive. They may be septic and unpressors, and you can't really remove fluid even if you wanted to because they're edematous. Then that patient will have zero ultrafiltration, but they would have clearance for whatever the indication may be, whether it's acidosis, azotemia, some kind of an ingestion, what some kind of a liver failure, high ammonia level, so on and so forth. So, so that's the terminology of dialysis and a little bit on how these various modalities are described from a nomenclature standpoint. How do we as nephrologists make a decision from a patient selection standpoint? Who gets dialysis with a three-hour treatment, and who gets dialysis with a 24-hour treatment? The main determinant of that is really the patient's blood pressure. The hemodynamics dictate whether the patient is going to tolerate hemodialysis three hours or do they need a longer treatment. If the patient is on a general medical floor, most institutions don't do CRRT or CVVHD or CVVH on the floors. So continuous therapies are usually confined to the ICU. The patient requires a catheter as an access, and those patients are usually sick. Uh, and the definition of sick is variable. It's a spectrum. Some people are slightly sick. They may have a blood pressure of 90 over 50, but not oppressors. But they could actually have a blood pressure of you know 80 over 40 on three pressors. Both of those patients could use a more gentle, hemodynamically friendly uh, slower treatment. And so those patients would be selected for either a continuous 24 hour treatment or one of the hybrid 10 to 10 to 12 hour treatments. 
If the patient is doing well, their blood pressure is great or their blood pressure is elevated, whether they have a catheter, fistula, or graft, we usually go to a three-hour intermittent hemodialysis. The selection of patients for the hybrid group is a little trickier. So some of the considerations that we may take into account would be, for example, somebody who has been on CRT for many days, but now they have improved. And we are trying to wean them off of a 24-hour treatment towards a three-hour treatment. So you could use a PERT eight-hour, 10-hour treatment as a weaning treatment or as an intermediary or a step-down treatment from CRT towards HD. So it could be a transitional treatment. Certain institutions use that modality because they have staffing limitations. For example, when COVID happened, because of the septic shock that was associated with COVID in the first round of COVID, we had a significant number of patients who developed AKI due to septic shock. And a lot of people required dialysis. And if you have a limited number of staffs and a limited number of machines. Instead of doing a treatment for 24 hours with one machine, you could actually do two 10-hour treatments during a 24-hour period. So you could actually dialyze double the number of patients. You could still deliver the same dose, clean the blood the same amount, remove the same amount of fluid, and not really compromise the patient or the goal of the renal replacement therapy. But staff and utilization of your resources can actually be improved with some of these hybrid treatments. So, so that's one of the one of the considerations of which modality we use as far as a continuous versus intermittent versus hybrid. There are a couple of a- actual indications where the the guidelines which are called KDGO guidelines, kidney disease quality initiative outcomes, which is a governing body for kidney specialists that they would essentially make recommendations on who should receive what kind of dialysis. They really don't make any recommendations as far as whether patients should be on continuous or intermittent dialysis with the exception of two things. Obviously, the hemodynamically unstable patients, they recommend that they should receive continuous therapy as opposed to intermittent, but also patients who have elevated intracranial pressure. So those would be patients with acute brain injury, whether it's a stroke, whether it's an intracranial bleed, whether it's an acute liver failure with an elevated ICP because of high ammonia level. If there's evidence of brain edema, increased intracranial pressure based on you know shifts, all of those things, we try not to do a short, rapid, and harsh treatment because the fluid and electrolyte shift will increase intracranial pressure and that increases the risk of herniation. So in those particular cases, we would like to use a continuous slash gentle treatment. All right. So we've talked about patient selection as well as continuous intermittent and hybrid therapies. One of the main things that you would notice, which nephrologists always deal with, is the access. So I wanted to spend just a couple of minutes on talking about what the difference is in an access. So the main dialysis access in somebody who's already on chronic dialysis would be either a fistula or a graft. A graft is a synthetic material It's essentially very similar to a fistula with the exception that it has to be surgically implanted. So a fistula is a surgically created anastomosis between an artery and a vein. A lot of times this is in the arms. It could be in the distal arm in the femoral area, or it could be in the intercubital area. So it's slightly closer to the, the forearm, or it could be in the upper arm. And the idea is that if you surgically connect an artery and a vein together, 
the pressure from the artery will essentially get transmitted into the venous system. And the draining vein, which is taking the blood from the wrist or from the forearm towards the heart, that, that what's called a draining vein or outflow vein, will essentially turn into an artery. It's the arterialization of the wall of the vein, which makes it bigger, it dilates, and it would be able to have increased flow. And that's what we, we want, right? Because remember, we talked about how in hemodialysis, you want a lot of blood to process to clean the blood. So when we put a needle inside of a fistula, we essentially set the pump to suck out about 400 to 450 ml per minute of blood. And you can't do that with a small vein in a hand. That vein may support 100, 150 ml per minute. It's not going to give you four to 450 ml. So we place two large needles. They're usually 15 to 16 gauge needles inside of this vein or fistula, one of the needles will take the blood out of the patient and takes it towards the dialysis machine and the dialysis filter. And the other limb, which is called the venous limb, will essentially return the blood back towards the patient and it goes through the needle back towards the vein and back towards the heart. So there is an extracorporeal circuit. The blood volume in that circuit could be around 150 ml in total. That includes the filter and the tubing. So, so we, we take the blood out very rapidly and we return the blood at the same speed and back towards the patient. When the patient has a fistula placed surgically, the amount of time that the fistula requires to quote unquote mature is somewhere in the, in the timeline of about three to six months. And the reason for that is there, we have to wait for the vein to actually get bigger. And that doesn't happen overnight. That takes time. So when somebody gets a fistula, we can't really use it for a long time. So a lot of patients who come into the hospital, they may get a dialysis catheter as a bridge for two or three or four months to, to get dialysis before their fistula is ready. A uh, arm access that can be used a little quicker than a fistula would be an AV graft. That's arteriovenous graft. A graft is also surgically placed the difference is instead of a direct anastomosis of an artery and a vein, you actually use a hollow tube to connect to the artery and to connect to the vein. And the reason we do that is because we don't anticipate that the vein that we are connecting a fistula to is going to develop. In other words, if the patient has advanced age, they're diabetic, they're a vasculopath, the veins are not very good. They may have proximal stenosis. You may not, you may not be able to have a successful creation of a fistula in that patient who is either not a candidate for a fistula or has had fistulas and they have failed. We can actually use a synthetic piece of tubing to connect to the artery and the vein, and then the needles of the dialysis will actually go directly into that piece of plastic tubing called the, the graft. And so we can have the same pump speed of 400 to 450, except instead of sticking the needle inside of, of the vein, we stick the graft material. The problem with graft is over time with use, the material could disintegrate. So graft has a limited finite amount of time that, that it would be useful. Because of the two anastomoses, one on the arterial and one on the venous side, the graft actually has a higher incidence of stenosis. And because of a combination of patient selection, vasculopathy, 
and the length of the graph thrombosis can occur most likely in the venous outflow astomotic site. And so it's not ideal to have a graft, fistula is preferred, but graft is also a better option than having a catheter. Catheter, as you can imagine, sticks out of your body, so there is a much higher risk of infection. And on the inside of the catheter, because it sits across a vein, it could cause central stenosis. It could have a thrombus associated with the tip of the catheter. So thrombosis, infection, and central venous stenosis are complications of having a catheter. So the ideal patient who would receive a chronic hemodialysis would actually have a fistula created prior to starting dialysis. So when the GFR drops below 20% or 20 ml per minute, we usually refer the patient to a surgeon or interventional radiology for creation of a fistula. All right, so now that we've talked about the three access for dialysis, which are fistula, graft, and catheters, I wanna move on and talk just for a couple of minutes, maybe a little bit more, about peritoneal dialysis. Peritoneal dialysis is the same concept from hemodialysis in a sense that you want to clean the blood and you want to remove fluid. Those are the main two goals of, of dialysis in general. But instead of accessing the bloodstream, the peritoneal dialysis uses the peritoneal membrane, which is the lines, the abdominal cavity, to use that membrane as a semi-permeable membrane where you create a blood fluid interface to clean the blood. So usually there is a catheter inserted surgically inside of the abdomen. This catheter is used to put fluid, usually somewhere around one and a half to two and a half liters of fluid per exchange inside of the peritoneal cavity. And as the fluid sits around, it absorbs some of the toxins. Again, the concepts of diffusion and convection apply here because the concentration of urea and creatinine and potassium are often higher in the patient's blood. And there is no BUN and creatinine in the fluid that is used to do peritoneal dialysis. So the molecules move across the peritoneal membrane, across concentration gradient, and then the used dialysis fluid is then removed from the body via the same catheter and it's dumped into the, into the toilet. And then we use fresh fluid to put it back into the peritoneal cavity. So we, we use this as a, essentially think of it as you're washing the inside of your peritoneal cavity with a solution, and that absorbs toxins out of your bloodstream. There are two versions of this. You can do a manual exchange where you actually drain the fluid that's in the belly, and then you put fresh fluid in, and you can do this every four, five, or six hours, or you can actually have a machine that's programmed that could be automated and you could do this overnight when you're sleeping where the, the fluid gets cycled in and out. The machine knows how to do that based on the programming that it's done, and that would do your dialysis overnight. Peritoneal dialysis is becoming more popular, so we're more likely to see this both in the outpatient setting as well as in the inpatient setting. It is you know, more patient-friendly, it's more hemodynamic-friendly. The patient has to have only one clinic visit per month on the outpatient side, so it gives the patient freedom of uh, doing their treatment on their own schedule. There is a more general uh, liberalized diet that's associated with peritoneal dialysis because there's usually a lot of potassium removal. So patients don't have as much potassium restriction. They don't have as much protein restriction as hemodialysis patients do. They are often not hyperkalemic. And so there, there, are, there are some benefits to doing peritoneal dialysis over hemodialysis. Obviously, there are some limitations. If the patient has had a lot of abdominal surgeries and they have adhesions, the fluid may not flow 
And if your surface area is not good enough, that peritoneal dialysis may not work because of loculation. There could be complications with the peritoneal dialysis catheter, like development of peritonitis, like kinking and, and, and blockage of the holes of the peritoneal cavity with bowel loops in case of GI motility issues. If you get constipated, diarrhea, those are all the, the things that you have to consider with peritoneal dialysis. And of course, the patient selection itself, the patient has to be able to receive the education, understand how to do these treatments. They have to be able to like see what they're doing and feel what they're doing. So there are some limitations in people who may be blind or they have neuropathy and they can't actually do the treatment. So there are some relative contraindications to PD, but it's definitely picking up steam and it's going to be a big part of future renal replacement therapy in the outpatient setting. Uh, with that, I'm going to stop and see if there are any questions. All right. Thank you so much. I think that you answered every single question that I could have possibly come up with. So. All right. That works. Amazing. Yes. Amazing and comprehensive. And I think right. that our listeners are going to love that. Thanks to Dr. Gashti for graciously spending time to explain everything we need to know about dialysis. You're in good hands after listening to that one. And thanks to Megan for putting together that episode. I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day and we were talking about which kidney they know to take um, for a transplant. And he said that they always take the right kidney and I asked why. And he said, so you always have one left. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. See you next time.